ICA presence. Kiara Kotokatawa from the International Communication Association Podcast Network. This is Interventions from the Global South. In this podcast, we listen to the voices of community organizers, activists and intellectuals from and of the Global South imagining different worlds. My name is Professor Mohan Dara from Massey University in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Today, we have the pleasure of having with us Professor Rafael Groman from Brazil. Rafael is a professor at Unicinos University in Brazil, the coordinator of the DigiLabor Research Lab and the principal investigator at the Fairwork Project in Brazil. He's also the director of the Platform Cooperativism Observatory in Brazil, funded by Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung and a founding member of Labor Tech Research Network. His work focuses on platform labor, worker organization, and data platform co-ops, both inside and beyond academia. Today, we will discuss digital sovereignty and how scholars from the Global South engage platforms distributing academic work, as well as the platforms hosting other forms of labor. We will talk about how translation into multiple languages impacts the way that scholarship and journals are perceived, and also about the open data movement and academic research climate in Brazil and other Global South countries. Welcome, Rafael. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Moha. Thank you, ICA, for having me in this amazing podcast. What, in your understanding, is the Global South? The Global South is not homogeneous thing. Brazil or India or China cannot understood as the same thing in a label as Global South. And on one hand, Global South can be co-opted by Global North because the colonial and Global South things are fashion now in the Global North. There are fissures regarding how we researchers from Global South can penetrate the mainstream circuits of academic work and communication and media research around the world. Recently, a Brazilian colleague called Ana Suzina published in Media, Culture and Society about English as lingua franca or how English as the standardized way to understanding academic knowledge can be a sterilized way of academic knowledge. So I think we from Global South can offer other ways of knowledge, but this cannot be understanding as a box or thing. We cannot understand ourselves as only researchers of on and from Global South because we can offer other things too. 
it's beautiful, Raphael, how you have complicated the idea of Global South, not just as space, but really thinking through the question of power. This idea that Global South as a box often works to reproduce a cultural category that actually limits the possibilities and imaginative spheres that emerge out of these spaces. What are some strategies that are vital to articulating this alternative imaginaries? It's a political commitment to publish in Portuguese and in Spanish too. Because imagine that in Brazil, there are about 70 or 75 academic journals in Portuguese in media and communication research. In Latin America, there's a tradition in publishing in Spanish and Portuguese because many people in Brazil and other countries of Latin America does not understand and don't read in English. So it's very powerful to us. And this is another thing that Latin America and other countries from Global South have a strong tradition of really open science and really open access, not a Taylor and Francis or Sage open access, but public policies around academic research. This can be an alternative and a strong perspective to produce and circulate knowledge beyond the borders of academic production in the global north. We researchers from Global South have to publish in the main journals of the Global North, because it's important to struggle with the Global North in their own language too. I have seen that many Global North universities have offered Global South job positions, like we need professors working on Global South perspectives. Now, to survive, many Western universities need our knowledge. It's a very complicated thing regarding migration, power and knowledge and so on. There seems to be an interlocutor, a translator or a mediator role that sometimes scholars have to play in terms of bringing the voices of the South into the North, right? But even in sort of playing that kind of role or building that kind of platform, there are processes of erasure written in, aren't they? Because you're translating into a language in terms that are palatable or acceptable to the global north. Yeah, and this is a kind of process that Anna Susina saying about the role of sterilization regarding the English as lingua franca, because the English as a standard language it's not only a question of language, it's a question of how you think about these things and how can be the ideal format, ideal of quotations and direct things regarding phrases and so on. And this can be a type of erasure on other communities. Another example from one of the greatest Latin America researchers in communication theory, that's Jesus Martin Barbero. Jesus Martin Barbero published in Spanish and in Portuguese too, a book called From Media to Mediations, Communication, Power and Hegemony. When this book, its translation 
into English, the name is the inverse, communication power and hegemony from media to mediations. The powerful concept of Jesus Martin Barbero is the concept of mediations, regarding how it's not focused only on media things, but regarding all sociability and all types of rituals and so on. So the translation of his book to English erasures some of his powerful things regarding Latin America communication theory. When a journal invited people from Global South universities to editorial board of a journal, this is a type of, okay, we have 99% of Global North researchers, but we need to have one people from the Global South. There is also emergence of European and North America researchers saying that they are experts of the Global South. And this is uh, another type of cooptation in erasuring our knowledge too. I want to come to that example of platformization of science that you uh, talk about. On one hand, the examples that you offered create powerful registers for thinking about how openness mediated through platforms is a way for building infrastructures of equality in generation of knowledge. On the other hand, you have a small set of techno-capital, particularly in the publishing sector, that reproduce these inequalities in knowledge production, ironically in the name of open science. So could you reflect upon that dialectic between resistance and co-optation the Silicon Valley ideology is that we offer a business with a common good or with social good purposes. This is a type of media and PR strategies also in the platforms of academic publications. Last year in Journal of Communication, my colleagues and me, led by Tayani Oliveira, published an article on the view from Latin America regarding open science and open communication. We say that open science in Latin America is not a functionalist thing. It's regarding infrastructures, regarding public infrastructures related to science and technology and innovation, regarding the real digital sovereignty of Latin America universities in Latin America countries. For instance, I know that SAGE has a type of platform, SAGEPATH. SAGEPATH is like a Tinder for academic publications. And we send to SAGE, okay, my article in searching for your ideal date, or ideal love regarding academic publication. And Latin America can offer a history of real open access regarding our journals and other academic publications. For us, it's a type of knowledge that needs to be circulated to all the people on our countries. We think about civic platforms to, it's like a, Alternative views of Uber or even Deliveroo and other labor platforms. I think we can expand this Latin American approach to other countries. And this is a challenging thing, 
but we need to build alternative ways to tailor references and sage journals. We know that is very difficult because science costs money and we researchers from Global South, we suffer from unpaid work in many, many, many ways. And these are racialized and gender and also colonized perspectives. Okay, we have a huge amount of unpaid work regarding reviewers, regarding editors and so on. This is a quick thing, but we need to at least imagine alternatives and not only to reproduce. And other thing, and Tayani Oliveira, my colleague that wrote and lead this article, is struggling for it's regarding multilingualism. The multilanguage we can offer in academic conference and academic journals and so on. I would love to hear a little bit more about the history of real open access as you describe it within Latin America. The Brazilian government in 70s and 80s built an infrastructure for journals that the journals are free and open and it's mandatory to apply for funding in Brazil. We have no, I forgot the name of charges. Article processing costs, APCs. Yeah, APCs. There is no APCs in Brazil. So all the journals in Brazil are located in public infrastructures and other types of platforms. And even in the Latin America reality, Many people don't know how to read all the things, and many people have no formal education. So how many people read academic articles? It's another trick thing to understand these things. So for us in Brazil, we are building now how these open access journals can be connected to a broader public scholarship and a broader science communication perspectives. So I want to come to this question that you articulated a little bit earlier about this concept of digital sovereignty. What does digital sovereignty mean for you and what does it look like? Digital sovereignty is a type of word. It is in fashion now. <laughs> digital sovereignty, platform capitalism, surveillance capitalism. It's really interesting how some words it's like convergence in the past or cyberculture or transmedia. Now, one of the words in fashion, our buzzwords, is digital sovereignty. And for me, a digital sovereignty, when applied from Global North perspectives, can be understood as, okay, we, a country of North America or Europe, need to protect our lines and protect our border lines regarding digital things because we need to protect our citizens. But from a Global South perspective, this word can be understood in a reframing way, in a context that many countries, even Brazil, can be understood as dependent on platforms from US mainly. We need to build our own public infrastructures, our own infrastructures regarding digital technologies and also artificial intelligence and other types of knowledge. 
and not only to protect our citizens or protect our frontiers or something like that but it's like survival because we don't want to be dependent country we have a country that depends on data and platforms and infrastructures even data centers and so on from united states of america this can be understood like a new versions of dependency and geopolitics and also about power relations regarding digital platforms and platform tree too i would love for you to share with us the work that you're doing with coops particularly thinking about the continuity of precarity in the global south right how then within that context does the idea of cooperatives or worker organizing offer an alternative way of organizing that can potentially challenge this global work infrastructure of capitalism I was researching platform labor five years since 2018 or 17. I published recently an article on South Atlantic Quarterly saying that we need to go beyond platform cooperativism world to put alternatives to labor platformization context because platform cooperativism was born in New York City in a New York City landscape of, of co-ops and we need to go beyond co-op and beyond platform. In the Global South, we are building many types of technologies and many types of worker-owned technologies. It is not ready-made formula. This is an emerging process and this can be understood more as a laboratory of class struggles as experimentation processes and prototyping process in brazil there are many interesting movements and collectives of women and queer and trans people working as riders and building their own infrastructures in a feminist intersectional perspectives many times i saw this post saying okay platform co-ops not working because they reproduce precarity and so on okay but we need to imagine alternative ways to face platform labor to face platformization of labor i'm the principal investigator in brazil for fair work project and i really believe that fair work principles can be used to not reproduce precarious conditions in platform co-op or i prefer the term worker owned platforms because it's not a type of co-ops but this need to be connected to a broader landscape and broader public policies I want to move toward wrapping up by sort of turning to that question of co-option that you articulated earlier because that seems to be a vital theoretical question for the global south. So what then are ways in which one can turn to the question of culture in the global south as a transformative register that actually is critical of this co-option and resists it? I really like a quotation from David Harvey. He say that contradictions have the nasty habit of not being resolved, 
but merely move it around. And this is a, a, a powerful thing because the contradictions is here. In our academic work, the academic work and all of the work in capitalism is also expression and expropriation or creation and exploitation. In the same time, for me, one of our most important epistemic challenges is not only understand the contradictions, but put the contradictions moving with other in the same time. It's very hard to do, but it's amazing when we can, for instance, as Ayad Mustafa Ali or others said, AI is a modern and colonial knowledge and power. So is it possible to decolonize AI? But other researchers say, okay, it's really possible to imagine a decolonizing AI perspective. I don't have the answer, but I really love this debate in a productive way. I'm interested really in this debate regarding the power and limits of the coloniality perspectives to understand AI or understand many other issues in media and communication research. The Global South has been the site of various interventions, if you will, that have been carried out by the forces of colonialism and empire and capitalism. Really, Thinking about that kind of interventionism from the North, Latin America has been the bed of experimentation with neoliberal policymaking, you know, in many ways. So if interventions then that challenge the Global North are also to come from the Global South, what are some of the big picture kinds of threads that you see that are necessary for us to actually imagine and make possible another world? This is a really great question. For beginning, I think that one of the first steps is to hear more the voices from the Global South in mainstream perspectives. One main challenge is how we can connect these many types of knowledge and many types of academic publications. Last year, in the Brazilian Association of Communication Program, we organized a talk series with journal editors from Brazil and outside Brazil, with Africa, Asia, Europe, and Global North. I think the first step is that we need to strengthen our conversations between Global South and Global North in English, Portuguese, Spanish and other languages too. And this is the first step and from these conversations we can imagine together alternative ways even to media and communication theory, media and communication research and what are the epistemologies of communication and what are other authors we need to recover to understand emerging issues or historical issues. Kiora, and in much solidarity with you, uh, Rafael, as you imagine an alternative politics in the context of Brazil and offer many lessons within the broader picture of the universal emergent from the global south. Lovely chatting. Thank you so much. This episode of Interventions from the Global South podcast series is presented by the International Communication Association Podcast Network. The show is sponsored by the Institute for Advanced Study in the Global South 
at Northwestern University, Qatar, producing and promoting evidence-based storytelling focused on histories, cultures, and media of the Global South. Our producer is Ilana Arogetti. Our production consultant is Nick Song. Our executive producer is Aldo Diaz Caballero. The theme music is by Sleeping Ghost. If you would like to hear more about the participants on this episode, as well as our sponsor, please check the show notes in the episode description. Thanks for listening.